You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, I'm Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. And I'm here today with Dan Willingham, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia and also the author of numerous books, some of which I have here. I don't know whether this is reverse chronological order, but I've got The Reading Mind, which is a cognitive approach to understanding how the mind reads, which I couldn't stop thinking about while I was reading the book. And then we have, oh, this is one of my favorites. I love this one. Why don't students like school? Of course, I've been in school since my entire life, so I'm one of these people that actually likes school. And then this one, which I think is really timely, when can you trust the experts, which is really addressed at a teacher audience and giving teachers the ability to evaluate technologies and proposals related to teaching, but I think has much broader implications in today's world. And then your next book, your forthcoming book is called Outsmart Your Brain. We're going to have to talk about that because I eagerly anticipate its release. So welcome, Dan. Thanks, Greg. Really happy to be here. So I want to start by asking a little bit on how you've become the person that you are today. You write a column for the AFT newsletter, I guess, uh, which I get. I'm a member of the AFT, so I get this. And I was wondering, what was that seminal event? I think you mentioned it in one of your books back in 2002 or whatever, which turned you from a cognitive psychologist working in general theories of learning to someone who is really kind of the in-house spokesman for educational psychology. How did this happen? Yeah, it was very much of an abrupt turnabout. So I started my career as a basic learning psychologist. I trained as a cognitive psychologist and a neuroscientist, and that's what I did for about the first 10 years of my career. So I was interested in learning, but I mean, you've, I'm sure, heard the old joke about the, the somebody gets a PhD and then their parents from then on introduce them as a doctor, but not the type of doctor who helps anybody. So I was a learning scientist, but not one who like would teach you how to learn anything new because I was involved in a pretty arcane little, you know, as most of us, most academics are, in a pretty arcane little aspect of that world. But despite that, I was invited to give a talk to a bunch of teachers. And it was by virtue of the fact that I was here in Charlottesville because Edie Hirsch, who's famous for writing cultural literacy in the mid-1980s, that book became a huge bestseller. And as he tells this story, one day he looked to his wife and said, well, we're making all this money. Like, should we be millionaires or should we do something interesting with it? And so they started an educational foundation, and it was located here in town, where he at that time was still a professor. And he was always fascinated by cognitive psychology. So when he was writing one of his books, he looked me up to talk with me about cognitive psychology. Several years after that, he remembered me and said, okay, my organization is having our national conference in Nashville. We should have a cognitive psychologist come and talk to us about learning. So he invited me and I rashly said yes. I mean, I said, like, I'm not that type of psychologist. I don't know anything about classrooms or anything else. And he said, we get that, obviously. We just think it might be interesting for the teachers to hear about learning from your perspective. So I said yes. And then six months later, realized this talk is in two weeks. Oh, my God, I've got to write this talk. What in the world am I going to say? So I really panicked and ended up sort of getting the lectures that I had been giving college sophomores for, by that time, about a decade about learning and attention and problem-solving stuff, and I just sort of picked out slides that seemed kind of relevant to me and went and gave the talk. And what was funny was my wife and I had just gotten married. I brought her to Nashville with me, and she's a teacher. And to give you a degree of how panicked I was, half an hour before my talk, I said, don't come. Because I was so certain it was just going to be a disaster. I made her stay in the hotel room. So I gave the talk, and to my considerable surprise, teachers didn't know all this content. I mean, that was my fear. It was like, what am I going to tell teachers about learning they don't already know? They didn't know this content. And they actually thought it was quite interesting and potentially applicable to the classroom. And that really did change my career because I thought my field is doing a terrible job of communicating with educators. And maybe that's something I could try my hand at. So that was 2001, I guess. And you mentioned the American Federation of Teachers 
quarterly called American Educator, the editor of that publication was in that audience of 500 teachers. And she said, that was really fun and interesting. Like, maybe you should do some writing for us. And I said, gosh, maybe I should. And so that was how it started. And within five years, I had completely transitioned out of basic research and was just doing translation. So for the profession of teaching, what is the relevance of theory to practice? In your one of your books, you liken teachers to doctors, right? And Doctors are practitioners. They have to, they're in the business of healing, but they also have to study quite a bit about biology and anatomy in order to be good doctors. Teachers also receive some training. Actually, professors don't, but (laughs) K through 12 teachers actually do receive some training. And yet part of this training is theoretical and part of it is practice. So doctors actually are residents and interns. Teachers maybe sometimes go through a little bit of that But do you think that the practice of creating teachers is one that is too theoretical, maybe not theoretical enough, or is it theoretical, but it's the wrong theory? That's a great question. And as you would imagine, I would say super complicated because it does get into issues of the relationship between basic science and practice. And that's one whole sort of can of worms and complication. And then the second question is, all right, even if we sort of set that aside for the moment and acknowledge it's really complicated, how are we doing with that? We actually have empirical data on how we're doing with that. And the answer is not all that well. So the typical way that this is measured is you look at student growth And that, of course, is controversial in terms of how that's measured. That's very frequently measured in a pretty narrow way, which is performance on standardized tests or the beginning of the year and then at the end of the year, what kind of growth has there been? But even given its limitations, you can compare on that. It's not that crazy when you're talking about something like math. How much math did they learn this year? We can sort of measure math. And if you look at teachers who've gone through traditional teacher training versus people who've gotten emergency certification, so they really haven't done very much of the coursework at all, there's not a whole lot of difference between the performance of the students and the classes of those two teachers. So that's pretty concerning and probably should be more concerning to state licensing boards, the people who are granting teaching licensing. We should be worried that we're not doing a good enough job. So is that because we're, we're not measuring the things that we should be measuring, or do you think it's more that we're not training what we should be training? I think we can do better in training. I think the measures are limited. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But if you talk with teachers themselves, their response, survey after survey shows that teachers' own opinion about their preparation is, it was interesting, but it was not super practical. When I got in there on that first day, I felt like by the end of the week, I had learned, I'm making this up now, but like I think it's a common thing that I've heard from teachers. By the end of the first week, I felt like I had learned more than I had learned in my teacher prep because there's just no substitute for actually being in the classroom. And to be clear, they kind of like it because they feel like, you know, it is interesting and you're getting all this theory. And they also say like very experienced teachers, you know, who've been in the class like a decade or something, they'll say like, now looking back, now I can kind of piece together what all that meant. And it feels like it lends a richness to my teaching. But at the time, I really needed to know, like classroom management's always the big one. Like, oh my God, you're really going to leave me with all these sixth graders? I don't know what I'm doing. So yeah, I mean, I think it needs to be more practical. And I have written on this. And when you ask about, is it the right theory? I think one of the things that is a real problem is that there are too many theories. It's not just that it's theoretical and it's kind of divorced from practice, but just thinking about learning, I mean, this is an aspect of it that I've looked at very closely, at least in terms of materials. I mean, I don't know exactly how teachers are being prepared because professors are going to do that differently, but you can at least look at the materials that are used, the standard textbooks. And what they all do is they sort of treat future teachers like they're future researchers. They like give them an overview of the learning field. And I've argued that's very ineffective. All it does is make them think, well, these people have no idea of what's going on. And the truth is, we have a lot of ideas about systematic ways that kids behave. And where the controversy comes in is trying to come up with theories that account for that. But we could actually tell future teachers, like, if you do this, this thing is likely to happen. We don't really know why. That's still controversial, but it's pretty predictable how kids are going to behave. And that's the way I've argued that teacher prep could be a little less theoretical and of greater utility. So it's kind of like legal training. I mean, I think when you train to be a lawyer, you have the first clue about how to run a trial, even sometimes draft a 
document of any kind. You're really kind of focused on this very theoretical stuff. So that's an argument in favor of more practice. But what about actually knowing what works? When you made this analogy to medicine, you were saying that in medicine, at least we have something like an FDA that will run clinical trials to figure out kind of what interventions are likely to work. We don't have anything like an FDA to figure out what teaching approaches work. So how do we find out right, what works and what doesn't work? Do we just rely on small-scale experimentation that happens in, in academia? Or can we actually use some natural experiments or do some observational studies based on the variety that we see in the American educational environment? So it's a great question, and, and it gets to an issue that's been pretty controversial. We actually do have a what works mechanism through the federal government, through the Department of Education. It's called the What Works Clearinghouse, and it's meant to provide exactly what we're describing, which is a impartial summary of the research literature. It's not had the influence that people had hoped. I think it was founded in 2007 or something like that. It hasn't had the impact that people hope. I think for a couple of reasons. One is that You sort of mentioned in passing, like, should it be small-scale studies? Should it be larger epidemiological? I think most people would say, well, you kind of want everything in the mix. Like, you want, they're frequently called the gold standard trial that looks like a medical trial. We have random assignment and all that. But then you also want to make use of naturally occurring experiments when that happens. And you want, like, really small-scale, fine-grained studies of a very small number of kids, but it's really in-depth you want all of that to go into your report. And the What Works Clearinghouse has been very narrow in their definition of what sort of research should count. They're really only interested in the gold standard business. And the other thing is those experiments are very expensive to conduct. And so they tend to only be conducted for very widely used interventions. So they don't cover that much. And then because they only want to deal with RCTs, they frequently end up saying like, well, there's all these experiments, but none of those experiments count. And so they sort of not that jokingly were called the what doesn't work clearinghouse because they ended up concluding nothing, nothing really has enough evidence to even be able to judge. That's less true than it used to be. But that's in principle, it's a good idea to provide that sort of information. And I think there are some educators who consult it, but it's, I think, also something of a missed opportunity because you would like science to speak with sort of a unified voice, and I think it could. Well, there seem to be a lot of folk theories about kind of what teaching ought to be. And in your work, you've discussed some of these fads and fashions and how they kind of rise and fall. And I think probably the most famous one is the reading wars. I wonder if you could kind of walk us through the reading wars, phase one and phase two, and maybe at a higher level, explain you know how it is that ideas that have been demonstrably disproven or at least shown to have no evidence, they persist and they resurge and they gain prominence. How does that happen sort of sociologically? And I think this has implications well beyond education because you see this happen in medicine, yeah. you see this happen in all sorts of disciplines. Yeah, that's a very difficult, challenging topic. So the Reading Wars goes back 100 years or more, and it's really a fight not about reading broadly, but about how one aspect of reading is taught. What most psychologists would call decoding, not just psychologists, but what most reading experts would call decoding. And that means going from print on the page to words in the mind. And what most parents would think of as a pretty straightforward process of teaching kids to sound words out. I mentioned this controversy goes back 100 years because the counter idea has been around at least that long. The counter idea is, look, this isn't the way visual perception really works. And you're thinking about this really narrowly. When you see an elephant, you don't say, well, I see a trunk and I see some feet and there's a tail. Let me kind of piece together these parts. You just see an elephant, right? And similarly, a really good reader just sees the word dog. They don't sound it out. And so this is the way good readers do it. And so we want kids to be taught the good way to do it straight away. And there's actually an example in one of the books you gave of an educational psychology textbook from the 50s, I think, that shows eye movement. So you see a page of text and you see little tick marks where a reader's eyes have stopped moving. 
for all of you listening now, if you've never done this before, you probably have, but it's really fun to watch someone's eyes while they're reading because your experience of yourself when you're reading is your eyes just sort of moving smoothly across the page. But it's not like that at all. You have these little jumps called saccades. And experienced readers make fewer saccades. And so this educational psychology textbook said, like, this is what good readers do, so you should encourage beginning readers to make fewer saccades. So what is, of course, skipped over is, like, the experienced readers probably, that's not what their saccades look like when they first started. And similarly, when you first start, you don't just see dog. You do once you're very experienced. But when you're a beginning reader, you don't just see dog. You really do need to sound it out. So this controversy, as I said, started like in the 1920s. It got resolved, apparently, in the mid-1960s. Carnegie Foundation decided we should settle this once and for all. They decided a woman named Jean Chawl, who was a professor at Harvard, should be the one to figure it out. She spent a year or two reviewing the entire literature and said the right way to teach children to decode is teach them letter sound correspondences. Don't try and teach them entire words at once. That, that's not going to be effective. So everyone thought that it was going to end at that point. But now this gets to your second question, which is how do people sort of put together this literature? And the truth is reading is complicated. There are kids who come in who have lots of natural language capabilities. They've got really good vocabulary. They're really good at piecing together syntax. They're really good at hearing individual speech sounds, which turns out to be important for reading. And they need really minimal support from a teacher. These are kids who, with just a little bit of guidance, kind of teach themselves to read. Those kids exist. There aren't many of them, but there are some. And then at their other end, there are kids who have none of that in place, and they need a whole lot more support. So every teacher is going to have some kids who, where it seems to go really well, other kids who are really going to struggle. So if I'm using a better method than another teacher, it's not like all my kids are going to learn how to read and all of the other teacher's kids aren't going to learn how to read. So the data that I as a teacher am seeing are kind of murky. And if I've been a teacher for 10 years and I've been using this method and I've seen lots of kids come out of my classroom looking pretty successful to me, along comes little Dan with his theory about reading and he's never taught anybody to read in his life. Like, why in the world would you believe me, right? This really seems hazardous to change your practice. So in the 60s, after Gene Charles' book came out, very little changed. And the reading wars really have not ended. We're now in 2021. I think in the U.S., there are more teachers who buy into the idea, yeah, when you're teaching kids to decode, letter sound correspondences really are helpful. It's not like every curriculum that districts are buying are terrific in offering support to teachers in doing that. So in a lot of districts, you have kind of a mishmash of different methods, and we could get more into it if you want to about the reading politics around this, but I think you, you get the idea of what the controversy is, and as you asked, why it is that everyone doesn't just listen to the science. Yeah, and it seems to continually go through these cycles where people start to bring back old discredited ideas. But it seems to me when you look at some of the things that you highlight as most essential things that we know work, for instance what you call scaffolding or the need for practice or the need for feedback. When I read through those things, I think, well, that just is so obvious and it makes sense, but it makes sense most to me when I put myself in the position of the learner. Is it that teachers have forgotten what it's like to be a learner? Because when you are a learner, like it makes perfect sense that you would start with the rudiments and then work your way up and that you would engage in repeated attempts at, to try and solve things and that you would want to know, are you making progress or not before you've completed the task? As a learner, those just seem so obvious. Do you think that teachers sort of stop learning at some point or they stop remembering what it's like to be a learner? They lose empathy for the learner? Is that a possible explanation for kind of losing track of these seemingly obvious insights? I don't think that's it because I think teachers have enormous empathy for kids and they're around kids all the time. And so I think much better than most people, they really know where kids' heads are at and what they're thinking about. 
I think a bigger problem is sometimes some of the things when it comes to reading are pretty arcane. You start getting into particulars of different phoneme groups and the ordering and the sequencing in which that sort of instruction should happen. And again, part of it comes down to sort of what materials do you have available to you? For most teachers, they're not in charge of the reading curriculum. They're not the ones who are making purchasing decisions. Someone at the district level is doing that. So they sort of are handed these materials and it's not like they bring nothing to the table in terms of using the materials, but the materials either support or don't support practices. And then the other thing is I've, I've already mentioned, like you're gonna have a lot of variability in your classroom. So we may see that Greg is doing great and Greg really knows how to read. Greg doesn't need that much more practice on this. Dan does, right? Dan's got a real problem. So now I've got to figure out how am I going to give Dan more practice? And frankly, Dan doesn't really want to do this because he knows damn well he's not very good at it. And he's really resistant to spending all day practicing stuff he's no good at. So how am I going to get him to practice more without completely killing his motivation? It's another thing that first grade teacher is really going to be thinking about. I don't want Dan to leave here and hate reading and finish first grade thinking this is all there is to reading is feeling shame and doing stuff that I find really hard. Meanwhile, Greg is over here doing great. So why just send him over to a corner read by himself and don't give him any instruction? That's not very cool. So they've got real challenges and especially given so little is emphasized in these early grade classrooms other than decoding. And that really is due to state mandates. Like nothing is tested except reading and math. And so this is how science gets crowded out, social studies gets crowded out, because administrators in particular know that their tenure sort of lives or dies by how kids do on standardized tests. Well, I mean, it seems like if we have a very standardized, simple-to-measure output objective, then this seems like something that in today's world, with all the technology we have, all these disputes should just disappear, because if we have individual test takers who are going through some individual journey that's potentially customizable, then we can just use analytics to figure out what works and and then even customize it down to the individual level. I mean, if you look at Facebook, they're able to create a news feed that optimizes engagement. That's not the objective we're interested in, but they just A-B test the crap out of every possible permutation of your news feed to keep you engaged. Or if we look at what video game companies can do, I mean, they know exactly how to keep people engaged for almost an infinite amount of time. Do you think that some of these controversies and some of these problems would just go away if we moved to a world where every single piece of the educational journey was being tracked and manipulated and A-B tested? So I think three or four years ago, there were a lot of people who thought that that vision was going to come to pass. And I think people are much less optimistic about it than they were Without getting into details, there was a a prominent technology and education person who sent around an email that got forwarded quite a lot in which he said the idea was that we were going to come up with this algorithm and the algorithm was going to be tapped into a database of knowledge and questions, sort of materials that would guide you through the sort of optimal pathway. An algorithm would tell me the optimal pathway and everybody would learn. And what we figured out is that we don't really have the algorithm, but even worse, what we really don't have is this big database and we haven't populated it with materials. And that's a very old problem. So there's a chapter that I like to quote that's from 2000. One, I think. The theme of the chapter is what went wrong with computer-based learning. So what you just described, people were saying was going to happen in the 80s. And that's when, for a medium-sized district, they could afford uh, mainframe computer and dummy terminals. And everyone thought, this is how learning is going to work in the future. And what it presupposes, the assumption that people were making is there's sort of an endless supply of good and interesting materials to present to kids. So in other words, you present me with fractions, how to add fractions, and I don't understand it. Okay, well then we have a branching logic diagram and Dan gets another presentation of addition of fractions. Well, wait a minute, who wrote that? What are you going to show Dan? Writing those materials is no small matter. 
as you said, like, can't we just A, B the hell out of this? Where's the A and where's the B? That's the problem. That's one of the problems. And then the pandemic has made people even more cynical about any of this working because it's really brought home. People don't like sitting in front of screens mm -hmm. all the time. It's not like the movies. Like, the movies kind of killed live theater. The screens don't seem to be killing live teaching. Well, but on the other hand, people do like to sit in front of video games for endless hours. And yeah. if you put a four-year-old in front of Roblox or Minecraft, I mean, they figure out pretty darn quickly how to build a castle or whatever without any immediate instruction from a human. I mean, maybe the, the reason why remote learning is so unpopular is because we're taking something that was designed for one environment and we're just kind of dragging and dropping it into a different environment. But if we rethought the entire yeah. methodology and, and, and optimized it for the delivery channel, it might be very different. That's well put. I like the drag and drop turn of phrase you use. So yeah, I mean, there have been plenty of people working furiously on that idea as well. And the difficulty is, I think, people underestimate the specificity of learning. So Minecraft's a great example. Can you learn perimeter and area through Minecraft? Sure. I mean, that's pretty straightforward because it's really well suited to learn that. But the broader idea, like you're learning teamwork if you're working with other kids to build something, you really aren't necessarily. I mean, or if you are, you might be learning teamwork in the specific environment in which you're in. So give you the example where we have the most data on this is chess. Russia, Soviet Union for years taught everybody chess because they thought it was going to make everybody smart. Uh, and we don't have their data because the Soviet Union never released it. But we do have data from U.S. school systems. Chess doesn't make you smart. Chess makes you good at chess. And so that transfer problem is a big problem in gaming. If you want to teach kids math, they actually really need to do math. And there are ways like the perimeter and area example where you can build mathematical problems into the environment. But the more general idea that people were hoping and that you actually still hear pitched a lot for gaming seems to be much less broadly true. I'm actually interviewing Tom Vanderbilt later this week, and he wrote a book called Beginners, and, and he talks about chess and his daughters learning chess. And, and one of the points that, that comes up there is, is there this general ability to learn that you can teach or this critical reasoning? I remember I started teaching our MBAs a critical thinking kind of workshop when they first show up to teach them the basics of logic and inference and so forth. And yeah. I think in a lot of our classes, I teach a course in statistics and the courses on data science, the idea is, well, you don't really need to remember how to do a decision tree, but you do need to understand kind of the problems of bias and these abstract concepts. Could you talk a bit about learning how to learn as opposed to learning specific content? And can you take that and transfer it from one area to another? The short answer is not very well. But it's more complicated than that, as you would expect. So take the simplest case first. When you first learn new content, it really does kind of cling to the examples in which you first learn it. And so every teacher and most students have experienced this. You learn about something we just said, perimeter. So you learn how to calculate perimeter in Minecraft. And then out in the wild, you encounter something where the idea of perimeter comes up but you're no longer in Minecraft. It just doesn't occur to you that you're looking at the same thing. That's a very, very consistent finding. Same thing is true when you talk about logic. So you can teach people modus tollens and they get it, but that doesn't mean they're gonna recognize it out in the wild very readily. If you practice with enough psychologists call it deep structure versus surface structure. So you've got modus tollens can take on lots of different forms, and that's the surface structure. Are we talking about coins or are we talking about eggs or whatever it is? Initially, when I see a problem about eggs, I just start thinking, what do I know about eggs? And I'm thinking about hens and I'm thinking about baking cakes. I'm not necessarily thinking about modus tollens or about correlation is not causation or about Newton's third law. The problem is all of these deep structures are about functional relationship among the elements. And it's sort of invisible in the problem, right? But it's obviously about eggs in some sense. So that's where my memory goes. And it's only when I've seen that functional relationship among elements in many different surface structures that it kind of jumps out to me. Oh, this yeah. is one of those problems. So one thing is, with lots and lots of practice, you get much better at transfer. The second thing is, well, is it then worth 
teaching people these abstract principles? And the answer is, yeah, it is. It's worth teaching people things like you tend to be biased. All of us tend to be biased so that we will kind of go through this mental checklist and think to ourselves, could I be biased in this way? And sort of try it on for size. This is generally called metacognition. It's like encouraging people to think about thinking. And the analogy I give is, it's sort of like, imagine you come home with a piece of furniture from Ikea and you get out the instructions and it says, think about other pieces of furniture you've constructed in the past. And every now and then stop and look at it. Does it look like it's turning into a piece of furniture? Like, these are actually not bad ideas. It does make sense to do that, but they're not sufficient. You need right. to know piece A goes into piece B, and that's problem-specific. So, metacognition is that sort of think-about thinking, and it's good, it's just it's not enough. So, I always wonder, why why don't we have courses, say, in JDM, or even just in, in statistics and inference at a much younger level? I find students come into late 20s into a business school and this is the first time they've encountered basic statistical reasoning or, or inference yeah. or first time they've been exposed to biases and heuristics. This seems like some kind of stuff that could be learned very early on. Or are you saying that maybe you need to have some domain knowledge to make it stick? And statistics, we talk about there's statistics for biology and there's statistics for psychology and there's statistics for business. And, and yeah. if the examples don't resonate with you, then you're really, it's just too abstract to really stick. Well, I don't think that's the problem because you could find examples that would make sense to high schoolers and it would stick because it is all around us. First of all, I think it's probably better than when I was in high school. When I was in high school, I really think it probably didn't exist much at all. Certainly it didn't for me. And my sense is it didn't. And now I think it is making its way into more curricular. But curricular are really slow to change. Telling people, like, maybe we should drop trig. And then there's always someone who stands up at the school board, me, how can you think about it? The most so, useless uh, course I ever took, by the way. I, I know. <laughs> I know. It's, it's like trig is always the one that people always say is no good. But you'll still have its defenders, right? Mm -hmm. We wound up getting rid of Latin at some point, although I, I took Latin too. Did you? Yeah. And that didn't come easy, getting rid of Latin. It would make sense if something would go before something else would come in. I fully agree with you, but curriculum is a tough subject. So this book on trusting the experts, right? This was really addressed towards teachers and helping them to evaluate yeah. differing kinds of teaching interventions and and then even for parents who are trying to figure out, because parents are really responsible, I think, probably for at least as much teaching, if not more teaching, than teachers. And they certainly don't have any kind of training in teaching. There's books on parenting, and there's lots of gimmicks and promises out there for becoming a good parent or becoming a good teacher. We live in a time when I think experts are maybe under attack, should we say? The lessons of this book, I think, go well beyond teachers, and even though it's 10 years after the book was published, what is it about experts? Why are people so bad at evaluating expertise? And why is it that people who purport to be experts oftentimes get just as much credence as people who actually are experts? Yeah, the problems are obviously related, right? So if I have a lot of trouble figuring out who's an expert, then I'm easily fall prey to people who claim to be an expert. And I think the reason is that once you get out of a content area that you know anything about, you have to fall back not on expertise. You can't really evaluate the expertise. So you fall back on marks of expertise, sort of earmarks of expertise. And I think those are fairly easy to fake, especially in professions where there's no licensing going on. So I think in the book, I give the example, you know, I trust people all the time without a whole lot of reason, right? So I had an architect who put together plans for a deck for my backyard. Like, how do I know this person knew what the heck they were doing? Or an electrician comes into my house. I don't really know whether or not they know what they're doing. But in truth, like for both of those, you can't practice unless you have a license. So unless they're breaking the law, they have been licensed by the state. Now, have I looked into that deeply? No, but I sort of don't have any reason to doubt that it's a problem. Similarly with my physician, I don't have much reason to doubt that the licensing process is a problem. But when it comes to education, there's not a licensing process and anybody can claim to be an expert in matters of education and a whole lot of people do. And so what they do is they sort of appropriate other sorts of earmarks of expertise, and they talk about fancy degrees they have, they talk about 
appearances they've made on television and books that they write, the kinds of things that we assume that experts do. And if you don't have anything else to go on, then okay, there's that. And then there's my gut feeling as to whether or not what they say makes sense. Of course, if someone is out to pick your pocket, that's what they're extremely careful about is coming up with a message that makes sense and that people will want to hear. But it seems like there are some general rules that you can use, even if your domain expertise is quite shallow. So as an ordinary person and you hear a claim on TV from a Dr. Phil or a Dr. Oz about eat these magic pills and your life will be perfect, it seems pretty easy to kind of say, all right, where's the footnote? Where's the study? Where's the report? Where's the research? And follow that trail just to find out whether or not it makes sense. Now, obviously, you're not going to do this for trivial claims, but for things like how you live and how you eat and how you raise your kids and so forth, it seems like a relatively small amount of work for something that has profound consequences. Isn't this a skill that you can acquire at a relatively high level? I like to say to my MBA students, look, you should be able to read an article in Nature or Science and get the basic gist and see if the methodology seems legit and so forth, rather than just reading the conclusion. And it's one thing to say, okay, well, it's in Nature, so it must be true. But you can still, as an ordinary citizen scientist, dig deeper to see if it really is something you ought to rely on. I tend to agree. And I mean, that was what I was trying to do in the book. And even more in the book, I was sort of assuming you're probably not going to read journal articles in Science and Nature because you're not an academic and you don't have access to those free and they're very expensive, as you know. So I was trying to make it where you don't have access to that material. But I think you can come up with some general principles which are not going to be foolproof by any means, but they'll offer some protection. And so to me, like the first thing to do is just to ask the question that you asked. You say that it's proven. Can you show me some evidence that it's proven? In the world of education, that cuts out about 80% of the claims that are made because most of the time there just isn't any. The other thing that I really encourage is like the sniff test really matters. Does this even make sense to you? If it seems like a miracle cure, if you're talking about like, I've figured out how to cure dyslexia, or kids who were struggling in math, I can get them three grade levels over the course of a summer. Like, that seems really unbelievable. First of all, you should be really suspicious of breakthroughs. If there is a breakthrough, they happen very, very infrequently in science. If you know anything about the history of science, you know breakthroughs don't happen quickly. What looks like a breakthrough in retrospect actually was a slow building process. And you'll hear about it on the front page of the Washington Post. You won't hear about it on a website with a money-back guarantee. So there's a handful of principles like that you can use. It is hard, though, because, I mean, especially if your child is struggling in school, you are really vulnerable because you are a desperate parent. I've been working with a lot of ed tech startups and the claims that a lot of them are making now, which I find compelling, is that the educational system that we all know and love was really designed to crank out factory workers and paper pushers and essentially tasks that you learn once and you can kind of amortize over 45 years And that's not the world we live in, right? We need to be training people to be continuous learners. We need to train them to become lifelong students. And so we need to teach them how to teach themselves. And this requires a radically different type of education. Is that something that resonates with you? And if so, what would the implications be for for how we need to adjust the kind of classroom environment going forward? Full disclosure, I was a Montessori student in my first until about fourth grade. And then when I hit fourth grade, it was an absolute culture shock to me. I I just could not believe that I had to sit in this little desk and listen to someone. And I kept trying to, where's my button where I can put my teacher on like three X? It didn't didn't work. (laughs) So I was usually kind of the, the person down here with the book under the desk. How do things have to change and in what direction? Since you offered that disclosure, I'll offer my disclosure. My wife is a Montessorian, and both of my children who attend school now attended Montessori school up through grade eight and would have gone to a Montessori high school if there were one in town. So I'm not a historian of education, but my friends who are historians say that the factory worker business is is sort of overdone. It is not representative of sort of American education. American education is very decentralized, and the idea that there were a couple of, at the time, 
old white guys with paunches smoking cigars and coming up with a mastermind plan for education throughout the 48 contiguous states is not very realistic. We were extremely decentralized since its inception. That said, there's no doubt the labor market has changed and the idea that we're preparing kids for a different job environment certainly makes sense. In terms of what needs to change, you know, you hear this a lot under the moniker 21st century skills that kids today just need, they need to be able to collaborate, they need critical thinking. Basically, there are many more jobs, this is work by Richard Murnane at Harvard, that there are many more jobs today that require cognitive work that is not repetitive. So 50 years ago, you were an accountant, you were doing cognitive work, but it was kind of the same thing over and over again. And most of the jobs today require much more nimble thinking, changeable situation. From a cognitive perspective, the sad truth is what we need to do is what we've been doing. It's just we need to do it better and kids need to get farther along. So this relates to the topic we were talking about a few minutes ago about transfer and the extent to which you can teach high-level thinking sort of completely domain-free. And people have been working at that forever. People cared about critical thinking 100 years ago as much as we care about it now. And people were as frustrated by the emphasis on memorization and fact-learning as much then as we are now. The truth is that the stubborn cognitive fact is the facts are easier to learn. The first thing you learn in a domain is the simple facts. You learn the definitions. Part of it is it's just much more obvious to you. Someone uses a vocabulary word and you don't know what that word is. That really stands out to you. If you say two things and I understand each of them and in your mind they connect, I may miss the connection and be completely oblivious to the fact that I've missed the connection. In your mind, that's the really good stuff. That's the rich stuff, right? This is what happens when college professors give lectures. What they find is the students are getting all the little factoids and they're missing the high-level structure. The high-level structure is harder, right? It's much easier to memorize facts and it's much easier to know what it is you're supposed to learn. So this is a natural first step of learning. This principle goes down to grade one. If we want our kids to be better critical thinkers, we just need to do what we've been doing better. In machine learning, there's this idea of the learning curve, right? So when you're trying to get better at classifying, you want to look at examples that are very, very different. So if you're just looking at the same picture of the cat and the same picture of the dog over and over again, it's not going to really improve your predictions out in the field. So you can actually design a data set that focuses on the things right around the edge the name of this podcast is Unsiloed, and, and the idea is that in today's world, the optimal learning curve may well force you to go farther afield than you might have in earlier times where uh, transfer from one domain to the other was less important. Do you see, in that sense, people have the capacity to get what we might think of as smarter, right? We observe that IQs have increased over time when you go from kind of rural traditional areas to more developed areas. These measures of abstract reasoning are better. Of course, there's got to be something that's given up, presumably. I mean, you can't track a kangaroo through the savanna anymore, but I can do this kind of abstract reasoning. Is our educational system really optimized for helping people to, to learn these so-called general intelligence type of tasks? Probably not, but I'm not sure that if someone came to me and said, you've got free reign to do whatever you want to optimize for general intelligence, go. I think I would probably say, here's your money back, because I really, I don't think I or anybody else knows exactly how to optimize. I think that there's certainly room for improvement So I don't know if you mentioned the Flynn effect. Yeah. You did mention the Flynn effect. Yeah. So that may be a question of schooling, but it's probably more a question of the environment more broadly. This is something else that we could really think about, which I think policymakers aren't thinking about enough, is ways of enriching the environment more generally and offering families and kids more choices of things they could do outside of school that would be cognitively challenging and that kids would find rewarding because kids spend a lot of time in school, but they also spend a lot of time outside of school. And that's very important to thinking as well. I'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit on the impact of the last year. There are a lot of economists that have done studies that showed 
the impact of, say, a year of lost learning. Yeah. There are others that say, well, maybe it's not completely lost, right? Because there's so much online education. But certainly in large parts of the world, like in India, for instance, most students have not had any kind of education at all online yeah. or, or in person. So I'm wondering if you could reflect on that and then at the same time maybe comment on some of the science. I'm a little perplexed at how readily so many of our teachers have accepted ideas around safety that don't seem to be grounded in any kind of science, not because they're bad learners or in bad faith, but there seems to be a lot of expertise that's been circulating that may be erroneous. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah. The learning loss, I think it is a cause of significant concern. I had a, an op-ed that sort of made the rounds. Actually, there were a lot of people who did not want to hear this. Med. Maybe it was just a crappy op-ed, but I usually don't have so much trouble placing op-eds. But the, the point of the op-ed was we actually have really good data that we know what happens when you don't go to school for a year, which is you're not as smart as you could have been. I mean, going to school literally raises your IQ. This isn't conjecture. Like We have really good data from a number of different sources. There are kids who get sick for a year and can't go to school. There are whole districts shut down because of flu for a while and so forth. And I think there's life expectancy consequences as well, right? There's bound to be because, I mean, that relationship between IQ and life expectancy is pretty robust. So it's a pretty broad range, but the estimate is something like anywhere between one and five IQ points for each year that you're in school. Now, a lot of kids in the U.S. have not completely missed school, but they've missed a lot. And there's definitely a lot of variation in how much they've gotten out of remote learning related to their home environment, related to their past experiences with school, the tech that's available, all the rest of it. And what I emphasized in this op-ed was the economic consequences. And this was work from a couple of Stanford economists that they undertook at the behest of the OECD. And they were looking not just at the consequences for individual kids, which exist, probably amounts to tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of lifetime income on average, but also for the U.S. economy as a whole. So there's a lot of this work on the relationship of cognitive skills and economic productivity. So a lot of this work has used OECD measures, international measures of cognitive skills, and then looked at the consequences for the economy as kids come into the workforce. So most of the testing takes place when they're 15. And then you look in future years at what happens to economic productivity. And there are data for 40, 50, 80 countries, depending on the year. And the relationship is pretty robust. And so they end up estimating that you're looking at probably $10, $15 trillion over the course of the next several decades in terms of lost productivity. So you have concern for individual kids and then concern for the economy as a whole. So that to me is pretty grave and indicates we really ought to try and do something about that. What I suggested is everybody ought to go to summer school. Nobody really liked that idea very much. The way I described it is what I still believe is there aren't any choices you're going to like. You can do nothing, and that, that's not going to hurt right now, but in future decades, it's going to hurt these kids. It's going to hurt your kids and your grandkids. Or you can bite the bullet and do something terrible, like go to summer school this summer and try and mitigate the damage. And I think this is disparate in terms of its impact. Here in the Bay Area, most of the wealthy people, their kids have been getting educated, and the folks that are less wealthy have not been getting educated. With the impact that large, why do you suppose that kind of hasn't entered into the cost-benefit calculations? Is it just that it's not well understood, or is it that teachers themselves don't understand it and haven't really been at the forefront of the discussion, or that the teachers are generally, their opinions are undervalued, or just based on your understanding of how expertise makes its way into the public domain, yeah. what do you think the issue is? This is a policy matter, and I, I'm no expert on policy, but briefly, my sense is there are a couple of pieces. One is that very few people have any appetite to do anything about this just because everyone just feels completely beaten down by the pandemic. This has been so hard. I think, I don't think parents want to do this. Very few teachers have any interest at all in teaching this summer because they're so exhausted from this year. And I mentioned my wife's a teacher, and she hasn't even been teaching full time, and this is exhausting for her trying to do this. But parents don't want it either. To the extent they can, parents want a normal summer. Like, we want to do the summer things and eat popsicles and stuff. We don't want to take my kid to school. It sounds awful. So I think that's a big part of it. And the other thing is, I think, to the extent that people do think about the economics of it, 
The people who are in positions of power might do something about it because they think of education as an economic benefit, and it's pretty much a zero-sum game. To the extent that my kid's educated, my kid has a bigger slice of the economic pie, my kid seems to be doing okay. And even if they're not, no one's doing okay. So no harm, no foul. But as I mentioned, like education makes the pie grow bigger. It increases economic productivity. So it is sort of something that everybody ought to be thinking about. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining me today. These books are fantastic, and you have a new book coming out, Outsmart Your Brain. Could you just give us a little bit of a brief teaser for that book? I would love to. Thanks for asking, Greg. So here's the simple premise. When kindergartners are learning, our expectation is close to zero, and appropriately so, for how much the kindergartner will bring to the table, so to speak, in terms of regulating their own learning. Your kid doesn't come home from kindergarten and you don't say, like, look, your teacher tells me you're not really taking finger painting very seriously. Don't you think it's time you kind of buckled down and got serious about this, mister? Whereas by the time kids graduate high school, our expectations are very high for their ability to regulate their own learning. We think they should know how to focus attention even if they don't feel like it. We think they should know how to commit things to memory. They should know how to deal with test anxiety. There's a long list of things they should be able to do, but they're not taught how to do any of this. And we know they're not taught because we've surveyed college students and asked them, were you ever taught how to study and so forth? And over 80% say no. Interestingly, most of them come up with the same strategies, which are, you know, they got to do something. They can't just say like, well, no one's taught me how to study, so I'm not studying. So they come up with something and they mostly come up with the same ideas. And the reason they come up with the same ideas is they come up with stuff that feels like it's working at the time, and that also doesn't seem like real arduous and real difficult, which makes sense. They're trying to learn efficiently. And this is why the book is called Outsmart Your Brain, because your brain leads you to solutions to these self-regulation problems that actually don't work very well. They feel like they're working at the time. The analogy I give at the front end of the book is this is one instance where an analogy to exercise in your brain actually makes sense. Frequently they don't. But if you're trying to learn how to do as many push-ups as you can, you can practice push-ups, right? But even better would be to practice really difficult push-ups, like the ones where you launch yourself off the floor and clap. But those, imagine me telling you to do that, and then your reaction is, Dan, this is stupid. Like, I can't do any of these. I'm trying to learn how to do a lot of push-ups, and you're making me do these terrible push-ups. I can't do any of these, right? But look at this, Dan. I do push-ups on my knees. I can do lots of push-ups on my knees. This is fantastic, right? And so this is why kids veer towards all the same strategies. They're doing the mental equivalent of push-ups on their knees. It's both easy and it feels like things are going great, but in the long run, it's really not the best exercise for your mind. So the feedback mechanism is not the right one that they're responding to. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I talk about in the book is how can you get valid feedback for how your learning is going? Well, that's fascinating. I look forward to reading it. I know that when I'm teaching in my business school classes, I try to impart some suggestions on how to best prepare and study. And oftentimes they're not the ones that students are are using. I usually tell them to study in groups. I tell them to explain things to each other and then interrogate each other and turn it into a social experience. Many of them hadn't thought to do that, but it seems to work very well. So thanks again. I appreciate it. Hopefully we'll, we'll chat again and I look forward to reading the book as soon as it comes out. Thanks, Greg. It's fun being here. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.